0: I'm Kamaran Peter of the Center for Analytics and Behavioral Change. I'm also in the Alan Gray Center for Values-Based Leadership at the Graduate School of Business, the University of Cape Town. You're listening to The Pulse. Today, I'm sitting here with two distinguished guests. Heather Robertson is the editor of the Daily Maverick 168, the print version. She's also the former editor of the Herald and the Weekend Post. She was deputy editor at the Sunday Times and Elle magazine as well. Also with us is Herman Wasserman, who is Professor of Media Studies at the University of Cape Town. Both our guests have had illustrious careers and possess a deep understanding of the media. And we're together today to discuss the role of the media and social media during periods of intense civil protest and unrest. So first, you know, just a more general question for the benefit of our listeners, Um, with respect to the devastating scale of unrest that we've seen unfold in KwaZulu-Natal. Why is this happening? Um, Who benefits and and who will lose out because of what's transpiring right now? And in particular, to what extent does this represent support for Jacob Zuma? And to what extent is this a product of the deep inequality and and grinding poverty that's been exacerbated under COVID-19 conditions? Heather,
1: look, I think the riots and the looting and the violence are definitely symptomatic of, of of the social conditions that we have, of the gross inequality in South Africa. And I've been writing about this for quite a while now. That unless that is addressed, this is a powder keg that is going to explode. And but make no mistake, the radical economic transformation faction and Jacob Zuma's supporters. Have actually, um, you know, are involved and, 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 and have m- manipulated and taken advantage pretty opportunistically of the deep inequalities um, that we have, and um, so so yes, the the, the match was lit by, by the by the by the by the people who were hanging outside the Kandla compound mansion. Um, and then, and, 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 you know, they did, did very little on the night when Zuma was, was actually, you know, handed himself in at, at Escort Correctional Services. But they had planned and they'd, and, 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 and the violence and started, you know, it was that it was like little fires all over the place on, on, on Friday night. Um, and, and, and yes, fanned a lot by, um, by, by social media and, um, uh, uh, yeah, so, so, the, I think the cause is, it's, it's both. I don't, I don't think it's only support of, 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 of the Jacob Zuma and the free Jacob Zuma movement. I do think that it's, um, um, that it it's actually, it's, it, 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 massively increased and in spread because of poverty, hunger. Um, and, and there's a, and the, and the levels of unemployment, I mean, we have, I think a lot of lumpen proletariat out there. I mean, it's very interesting that it was liquor stores that were, that, you know, that we, and, and the last two, two weeks we've had, um, liquor not being sold because of level four of lockdown. I think there's a lot of frustration, um, because of lockdown, um, people not being able to, to, to move around, um. I mean, people just been full of this pandemic and 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 been frustrated about. It. I mean, people have lost their jobs due to the pandemic. People mm. um, have lost lives due to the pandemic. People have been very ill due to the pandemic. So, so I think it's a conflation of a whole lot of different factors that were lit by um, by 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 the people standing outside, you know, at that at, at, at in Cunliffe and 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 and, it, and it's just blown up.
0: It's like the perfect. Firestorm, all the fuel was there. And all it took was, you know, a little bit of, not well, a little bit, <laughs> I think quite a bit of coordinated. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, I think there's a massive oh, coordination. Yes. Speaking to people on the ground, there does seem to be a it does to be a coordinated response. Um, and, uh, you know, understand that, I mean, that Jacob Zuma was in charge of this apparatus, um, not just for the nine years that he was president, but, it, I mean, remember he had a massive, um, um, I mean, he was part of the negotiations, uh, the peace negotiations in Pazolotel in the, in, in the early days, in the 90s. I mean, who was he negotiating with? Um, yeah, I mean, like he was negotiating with warlords, I mean, how did he pacify the warlords? Did the warlords support him in the end? Because, I mean, there was a massive shift between the IFP and the ANC when Jacob Zuma came into power. I mean, you know, so so those, you know, who, who knows, but there's, it's a very complex situation. And I think it's been happening longer than the 10 years that Jacob Zuma was was president. Um, and, you know, we, I mean, those of us who grew up in KwaZulu-Natal have experienced this violence before. Um, and mm. then, we, we, uh, and before it, it, it was it, it was the ANC, the UDF versus the IFP, but then also a were thrown in. I mean, um, and, and and so, how much of that has actually, you know, been lying dormant or has been activated and and has been rekindled now? It, it's you know, you know, it's very it's complex. But uh, what wasn't there was social media. The only, the, the, I mean, that's one element yeah. that wasn't there. Has been social media and, 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 and how that spreads disinformation. I mean, I've been appalled at, at, at the WhatsApp messages. Um, we must go and burn down every single uh, minister's house. Uh, we must kill Sil Ramaphosa in his house. We know where he lives. I mean, spread, across. I mean, like, the, this, this is a WhatsApp a, in a, a, a in in a Yolville group, okay, that, that mm-hmm. I'm talking about. I mean, unable to identify who the person is, but it's like, it's incendiary. And it's all over the place and in all different platforms.
0: Yeah, I grew up in KwaZulu-Natal in the 80s. So I lived through the two states of emergency and, um, you know, just drawing on my own personal experience. What's happening now was kind of what the nightmare <laughs> the nightmare scenario would be in KZN. And, you know, it's not good to draw out all ghosts, but I think what you're saying is really speaks to the heart of the issue, which goes back quite a long way. Uh, even the IFP only really came into Kadessa negotiations at a very late stage. They had to be convinced. <laughs> there was all this talk of secession. So... Uh, even though it might be denied, I think there's also elements of sort of Zulu ethno-nationalism playing some role here. Uh, Herman, I know it's not your um, stock in trade, but do you have anything to add to this?
2: Well, I think um, just to add on to what others already said, I think the temptation in, in moments like these is to um, try and find some sort of causal relationship between what we see on the ground and 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 you know to connect events. Um and I think one has to guard against a sort of reductionist view of this. And I think what I appreciate from both your views is that you both take it not only back to the sort of longer history of what's going on in, in KwaZulu-Natal now and the 80s and so on so long standing um tensions, polarizations in, in that province. But also the broader issues of, um, this is certainly a part of cake that was lit by, um, the imprisonment of, of, Jacob Zuma and his supporters, but that there are also many other factors at play. There are social, political and economic factors. And I think it's the, the challenge here is to try and unpack, um, you know, how these things relate and, and, and avoid, I think, a simplistic view of this. So what we see here, I think is, is certainly, um, a, a political moment, and it is also something that is maybe um, a, a useful moment for for certain political players and political actors. Um, but it is certainly also something uh, a more deeper and, and and longer, more complex and And again, I think also when we even when we talk about something like looting or rioting or unrest, and we maybe we should get to some of these terms you know in due course of this conversation and, and also how the media are using these these terms but I think when we look at this there's also the the, the danger that one homogenizes um what is happening i mean there are different types of of protest uh, uh, different types of criminality different types of looting different types of um Behavior, I think, and, and then we have to try and, and disaggregate these. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's, it's quite a complex situation and it's a very demanding one, I think, especially for the media to, to get to grips with and to try and portray. And I think already we are seeing some of the, the problematic aspects of whenever there's a conflict, whenever there's, um, you know, something that is a, a crisis like this, uh, tends to, to lead to certain types of reporting that, that might be more harmful than, then, uh, then good. And, and so maybe we can get into some of that as well in due course.
0: Yeah. Now that you raise it, you know, um, I was struck by some of the language on ENCA that was being used throughout the last few days, you know, uh, pronouncing judgment in essence, you know, not incorrectly calling this criminality, <laughs> but when the media uses that kind of language, uh, it's definitely shaping the conversation in a particular way. Um, And, you know, particularly referencing, this is not protest, this is criminality. Um, And, you know, also just speaking to the broader history of this on a more South African scale, is that service delivery protests and there's a wide range of different reasons for these protests. We've lumped them under this term service delivery protest. But to some sources, you know, in 2004, we only had like 14 major service delivery protests, ones that went violent. they are different sources for this, by the way, you know, so it's hard to pin it down. But from this particular source, it went from about 14 major in 2004 to peaking at over 100 in 2009 which is just after the financial collapse and Jay Kuzuma comes to power. And then around 2013 to 2014, it actually started peaking around 400 per year. And I was monitoring this all along um, and became deeply concerned about uh, particularly the youth bulge who were being raised in this culture of protest, which is the only way they could, often those communities had legitimately worked with, on the, with local councillors and local government as much as they could and got nowhere. And after two or three years, they would become hutfall <laughs> and just, you know, take over a highway or, you know, set up obstacles and basically render the, it ungovernable. And then a politician would come in. And see to their needs. So it's not setting a precedent for how you go about doing it. So I've always had this fear that it might spread in the way that it did in Natal, but never in my wildest nightmares did I imagine I'd see what I've been seeing over the last four days.
2: I think the the point here is that again, that is is important how media frame things, and and again. Um, Just at the beginning of this, uh, these events a few days ago, I think the the first framing was that of protest. So, I mean, and I think international media as well, often saying this is a protest against Zuma's imprisonment. And immediately that made me feel somewhat uncomfortable just because of the language of or or the history of protest that you've just pointed to. Um, where that sort of protest, the social delivery protest is also a reductionist way of looking at it because it's it's not only about giving us some sort of, you know, in a sort of transactional move, giving us social services or, you know, delivering whatever that might be, water or sanitation, all of that important, but pointing to a much larger problem, which is that there are many communities that felt that they weren't being heard, communities that felt that they weren't being um uh, they're not important. They're not in count. And the only way that either the politicians or the media could pay attention to them was by blocking roads and, and burning things, to, to put it bluntly. But that was a much more, I would say, a, um, and I don't want to get into the language of legitimacy or not, but I mean, I think it was a it was a political and a longer political struggle. And there were also some political groupings that have come out of those, those, um, protests and have been linked to those protests in a way that I think, um, one could see them as democratization protests, you know, and we've, we've studied this and we've written about this and, and, and it was interesting. I think that a lot of those protests, were um, to do with the dividends of democracy, people that felt that the the dividends of democracy weren't paid to them, right? So nothing really has changed. And it also pointed not only to a political failure, but often also a failure on the part of the media, that the media only reported when there are these moments of conflict, these spikes, and it became a strategy, right? So, um, and, and when we spoke to activists, they would say, well, that's the only way that we can get the media to report on this and when they do, they only report on this while things are happening. once uh, the protest stops, then they disappear um, and, and and I think the so so to come back to this particular set of moments I think when I saw the the, the term protest," um, I think this was for me felt uncomfortable because it it might have the implication that it is similar to those types of protests, which i don 't think it is. I think there are um, certainly some resonances and I think some of what we are seeing um, certainly speaks to a a disgruntlement, a a disillusionment, a frustration and an anger and maybe a lack of ownership of society, a a feeling of marginalization. But it is not, I think, a a political uh, protest in the sense that those community protests were as a sort of um, outflow of the democratization process. So I think um, that has now subsequently been reframed. I think the media now um, talk about unrest and, and, and similar type of framings. Um, and, and so it is important to I think that the, that we consider also how this is framed and how this is reported. And again, um, trying to do the difficult work of making this more complex rather than simplifying it. And I think that is that is a particular challenge for the media is to try and get to the complexities rather than oversimplifying things.
0: Um, you raise such an interesting point. Um, Hannah Arendt, in one of her books, uh, quotes John Locke, if I'm, not, uh, if I'm correct, where he speaks about the plight of the poor man. And what he says is, you know, what the real curse of the poor man is, is invisibility. And so it speaks to, you know, that making yourself visible uh, in order to become part of, to, to get some of the dividends of this democracy.
1: There's also interest, there was an interesting piece of research that Carl von Halt did from CSVR, um, the smoke that calls, which speaks to exactly this. Um, like we looked at, at eight cases of community protests um, and xenophobic violence. And it's exactly that, is that the media... Goes um, when, when there's burning tires and when there's fires, but not just that. And when the media goes, that's when government pays attention. Um, mm. And, it, and it's, so we need to look at it in that, in that context as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. Just, it's, it's, yeah, you know, it's, also, it's like smoke, it's, it's smoke signals calling, you know, to actually look at us, pay attention to us, take our issue seriously. And this is the only time we do which is, which is it's, in a way, it's a, it's a failing of a media that has been decimated um, um, for numerous, n- numerous re- reasons. I mean, there are much fewer journalists in newsrooms around, and so um, they can't actually attend to everything. But obviously also a failure of government to, 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 to pay attention to service delivery in, in those areas. So this is the only way of actually of communities communicating whatever their needs or the issues are.
0: Yeah, it's a strategy. Um, so my next question is, you know, the right to protest is, is key to a healthy democracy. And while civil disobedience is often a part of protest, you know, the, the role of violence is heavily contested. And in the media and social media climate of today, simply sharing footage of violence can itself add fuel to the fire. So when we look at the protests unfolding over the past four days, what can we say about the role of media and social media in amplifying the spread of violence, so both the media and social media? And more specifically, to what extent does traditional media amplify the disinformation that appears on social media or, or serve as a source of disinformation itself? Is there a vicious cycle between the two that can amplify the unrest. I know it's a bit of
1: a leading question. Okay, so when we talk about the media, we've got to talk of different kinds of media, okay? Um, I know, I would like to think that the media that that basically um, puts itself, and uh, the media, the, those media organizations who are members of, for example, the South African Press Council, or the or the broadcasting complaints commission the, 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 those media that actually um, uh, put themselves up for peer review and scrutiny um, in general are a little bit more or i think a lot more careful about amplifying um, falsehoods um, and 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 do a lot more fact checking I mean I know in the organ, in, in the daily Mavic we have to do that and um, in other organizations that i 've worked for we, we did do that as well um, it's, and, and, and it 's very easy um, to you know you see, um, for organizations which are looking to increase audience as, so as to increase advertising to not be circumspect and and to not um, and to not investigate and verify and fact check um, and i 'm just going to call a spade a spade. Um, I.L., an independent media, they refused, they, 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 they deserted the press council. They've decided to have their own ombudsman. And, um, and, and look what's happened with that. Uh, the story of the, of the decoupets. Uh, you know, I mean, an editor working for I.L. actually wrote a story that went viral globally. And, you know, we still haven't seen those babies and, 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 and they're investigating themselves. So, so, um, yeah, it's, it, it is, it is a bit of a leading question and it's, it's very, it's very difficult. And, and, it's, and, 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 and what we have to do in the media is to, is to take very deep breaths and, and do not, um, want to go and, you know, cover every single thing as and do not and do not amplify every single thing that we see on Twitter or on Facebook. But we have to actually check that first. And so, and, and and some, as I said, who we want to who are chasing clicks um for, you know, to increase audience size or to or um they 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 would perpetuate the um the, the falsehoods that are being that, that are that are being amplified on, on social media. Um but I think what does distinguish those of us who do belong to to organizations like the Press Council and who do abide by the press code, um, it does this thing, we, 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 you know, we are forced to actually, and even when we do, when we make mistakes, we are, we, we are forced to, to, um, to self-correct, to apologize, um, to publish prominently th- th- those apologies. So, um, and, and I think that's a, that, 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 that is a very valuable mechanism for us um, and, and, and for it to be totally seeped in the way we actually do our work. Um, on, on, on all levels, particularly in times like this, and to and then the conversations in the newsrooms. I mean, there's a lot of argument and a lot of debate about like, hey, you know, um, yes, they, I mean, and, and you can see it because I mean, we, we we work in remotely, right, because of COVID. Uh, very difficult to actually physically go into into places. Um, our I mean, our port- reporters and photographers are putting themselves at great risk. They have to be covered in PPE. Um, and now in, in, this, in, in situations of violence, you don't have to wear protective gear, but they are going out there and they're getting the photographs and, they, and, they, and, 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 and they're interviewing uh, people involved, but but often in very, very difficult circumstances. And then so it's up to us that are sitting at the desk to, to ask the hard questions and to verify and to fact check and to counter check, you know. Um, and I think um, online, I really, really take my hat off to Africa check for, I mean, they've been very fast in, in um, for example, that um, that uh, Duduzile Zuma um, tweet um, saying that now she's like saluting all these people protesting over the place. and they pointed out that actually, hey, her, that, that this doesn't actually happen. Now this happened a year ago, um, and I, I really think um, 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 media, then they are part of the media, like, like Africa Check, are doing a brilliant job to to to. Um, to to basically counter the false narratives that have been, I mean, spread all over the place by who knows who. I mean, we don't know if they're bots, we don't know if they're real people. We don't, we, you know what I mean? Um, and then the few real journalists who who are, who are not bots. That's um, a tough. It's a tough job. It's a very tough job that we have working in a pandemic, and working in, in 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 these kinds of circumstances. So we try—is what I'm trying to say—is those of us in the media that do be that that that, uh, that that do subscribe to the values of the press code and do belong to the press councils, the broadcast and do abide by those things. We try damn hard to get it right, and when we get it wrong, we you know we we, we self-correct and apologise, and that's very important.
0: Yeah, I mean I can imagine what a difficult job it is. I, I just watched a little YouTube interview with William Byrd and. He was saying, you know, in the era of mobile phones, uh, journalists can't be first on the scene everywhere. (laughs) So they take on a different role of, of actually having to vet the kind of yeah. footage that's we coming through. We don't break them. the
1: news. We have to verify the news. We have to We have to go in deeper. We can't, we, I mean, there is, I mean, especially when there's a crisis like this, and I mean, it's, it happens everywhere. There's a temptation to like, oh no, we've got to actually go and do this and do this first and be the, and, and we've got to constantly caution and say, hold on, this is not our role anymore. All this stuff is flying all over the place by, by, I call them citizen journalists, but ordinary members of the public with their cell phones who are like sharing stuff all over the place. We have got to step back and we've got to actually put, uh, uh, try and understand it, speak to experts, try and join the dots, try and explain what's behind what's happening because we do not break news anymore. However, I mean, I know News24 claims to break news first, but actually it's the citizens who are breaking news. It's cell phones and smartphones have have, have, have put that breaking news role I um, know the history maker. I said we, um, the, the first, the um, the what the, the first record of history. It's actually it's actually ordinary people and journalists can't be everywhere because, as I said, we've been decimated. What we can do is actually use the tools that we've been using that we've learned to try and distill, analyze, explain, interrogate, investigate. That's what we can do.
2: So if I can come in there. I think the, 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 the what, what Heather what you've been referring to now in terms of the the. Curatorial job of of journalists, uh, I think that has become that's certainly an added challenge. I think that we see in, on social media, and that's the and and to that the, the whole um, disinformation and fact checking, and it's a whole new ball game, I think, for journalists. But I think there is also a longer um, tradition of of these questions in terms of what's the role of of media in terms of of amplifying violence, and you know, and then there's a whole school of thought, you know, you can go back to. Thatcher and Northern Ireland, where she used those terms of the oxygen of publicity. So don't give protest the oxygen of publicity. A similar argument you might recall was used by Claudio Motsuneng a few years ago when um, he said the ACBC was not allowed to cover community protests. And and often th- these arguments are often used by people that want to quell, uh, not to quell conflict, but, but actually want to suppress dissent. And, and I think that's that's the wrong way to go. Um but the, the, the converse is true in the sense and, and so there's a whole academic history also of media effects and you know to what extent can can media actually um amplify and and cause further violence. Exactly that's another another classic, you know. Um so I, I think that that is certainly not the, the the way to go. But but at the same time, there is also the danger that one says, "Well, we are just um, mirroring what is going on. We're just a messenger. We're just holding up a mirror to society." And I think um, the points that Heather that you're making around ethics and around um, responsibility um, that is absolutely vital in a situation like this. So there's also a, a whole tradition of peace journalism, for instance, where instead of say reporting on and, and Heather, I know that while you were the Herald, you did also did this listening, for instance, and and that there's a very good example of a type of peace journalism that listening to communities and trying to look for solutions rather than just playing up the conflict. And there's, I think, what we're seeing here already is that you, there's a danger of reporting this almost as as a sort of a horse race, you know, who's going to win? You know, the the the, the looters or the police or the um, Zuma or Ramaphosa. and and you know, it's, it's like this. Um, and 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 just reporting on that, in, in almost in a stenographic fashion, that I do think has the the potential of, um, if not amplifying the violence, um, actually not doing anything to contribute to its de escalation. I think what, what is needed here is then that sort of ethical um, reflection on how can we make this um, maybe more understandable for people? How can we contextualize this? Because remember, I mean, as as widespread as this is in KwaZulu-Natal and, and Khateng, we are still talking about two provinces in, in a country. We are also talking about... And, 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 to what extent are we seeing people not only, um, resorting to vigilantism, vigilantism, but also, you know, people actually standing up and say, well, we're going to protect the shops. We're going to try and help out. We're going to try and. So there's always a choice. And, and I think there's always a choice of, of what do you spotlight? So that argument of we're holding up a mirror, I think is, is, is a very, is a, is a useless metaphor for me. I, I think one should rather talk about projecting. What are you projecting? So you, you do cho- choose to, to focus on certain things and, and project certain things. And, and I think that's where the ethical responsibility comes in to realize that, um, we are not just, um, recording and mirroring. We are actually, um, contributing to a conversation or to maybe, uh, maybe it's, it's long past the conversation. We're contributing to a very heated argument. Um, and you know so 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 what what can the media do um, to de-escalate this to contextualize this to explain this and and I think this is where there 's this this knowledge of history of longer histories of of social dynamics of um, also of the sort of things that we 've been talking about the, the 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 longer history of democratization in this country, the frustration that 's that 's um, palpable everywhere. Um, how do we explain that? Um, rather than just looking at this other sort of um, very simplistic conflict that you know you you follow as if it's a you know a, a dumpster fire. So I think um, f- for me, I think that's where the, the ethical questions comes in, and, and I think Heather is entirely correct by saying that um, the, the, the the press code, the press council, the, the broadcasting complaints commission, these um and 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 also the the various organizations working to counter disinformation these are vitally important at this point um because this is really where journalism and um and really all of us that are involved with it as media users and people that share things on whatsapp and and on facebook twitter and so on where we we get to reflect on what we're doing um and and if we don't have that, I think then then the media is, is going to do more harm than good. So it's, it's, it's really a vital aspect, and I share your concern, Heather, that um, you know some parts of the media have just really decided they're not going to do that, um, and that's that's really problematic. At the same time, I think another thing about around journalism that we have to recognise is that it has been hollowed out. Um, the, the 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 capabilities of the media have been vastly. Um, eroded over the, the past number of years as a result of many factors and economic factors that have been exacerbated also now by the pandemic, and we saw the the Sanef report that came out uh, was that a few months ago that that pointed to the the uh, some of these problems that are still um, present in, in newsrooms. So I think again here when we talk about the media's role, uh, there's also the this is also a chance to think about how do we strengthen the media's capabilities. To contribute to the sort of um, peace building and peace journalism rather than uh, just the sort of stenography of violence.
0: How well are journalists being prepared to be able to bring real perspective to the very complex kind of challenges we face as a society? Um, complex interactions that produce, you know, the events that, that capture our attention. You know uh, you know beyond just the business model <laughs> of, of media and how it's changed, just in terms of how journalists are prepared, have there been any fundamental changes or shortcomings in that?
1: you know the biggest problem um, has been um, the for for me in in newsrooms and in institutions that I've worked for like, uh, for example uh, has been the closing down of, of, of training in newsrooms due to, I mean, you yeah, know, economic factors, um, you know, as, 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 as the institutions started making less profits and so, and, and, and media started shrinking and, you know, more, more people were, um, um, you know, were, were, were let go. Um, one of the first things to go were, I mean, there used to be cadet training and there used to be, you know, like uh, internal schools where, where young journalists would come in, they'd say, come from the universities and then they'd, and, and then they'd work and be mentored by all the journalists. And now, I mean, also um, people have to multitask so much, you know, like, um, they've got to, they've got to use their cell phones to take photographs. They've got to record, they've got to tweet, they've got to write their stories, they've got to interview um, I think that's that's um, that burden, that, that 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 overburdening of the journalist as an in, individual, and and that and that sort of that that taking away of that mentorship role of older and younger, because also newsrooms have become. Rather juniorized uh, and <laughs> Tele- is like an anomaly because actually there are more people over sixty than, than under thirty, which is um, which I think it, it, it does show in terms of analysis etc and, 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 and understanding of history and context and background um, but a lot of a lot of newsrooms have been juniorized um, because the older journalists were more expensive. Um, yeah. So, 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 so this is this 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 is the challenge that 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 newsrooms face, and in in terms yeah. of and then the universities. Um, I've two, uh, recently got. I mean, did did my my MA at at Rhodes. I find the universities are trying. They are actually trying to. Um, no, when I did my MA the roads must fall and fees must fall were happening and um yeah, my the the, the lectures and academics there really did try and I found we used a lot of um oh, we used a lot of Herman's work, uh, papers uh, and, 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 and and academics and immediate researchers from all over, from all around the country. Um I I, I think they the academics are actually in a pretty good job of of of, of analyzing um, the role of media and the transformation and the and, 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 and the use of digital media i i mean honestly and i 'm saying from the perspective of someone who was a master student um, I was amazed having come out of the industry at the amount of amaz- work that, there's, that that there's been done in in terms of of reflecting on the role of journalists, journalism digital media, the whole digital transformation. Um, so, so yes, um, when I, as a, as a student, I felt that the universities did, pre- to, uh, uh, were preparing people. I'm not, I and mean, that was at a master's level. Um, and, 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 but what I do think needs to happen is that there needs to be better relationship between people working in the industry and the academy. Um, when I was at the Herald's, I had quite a good relationship with Rhodes, and, we, and I would speak to students, and I think that was that was fantastic because, um, as like my colleague Saboon Galwa, who was the editor of the Dispatch at the time, we'd be called in and we talk, we you know we, we'd engage with students. I think that's important, um, and jour- our journalists would also go and talk. So, so having that, um, you know, bringing in the practical experience um, and, and engaging with uh, but, 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 but engagements between students in the academy, lectures in the academy, and working. Working journalists and editors, I think it's very important. Um, otherwise, students come. I mean, and, yeah, with a whole lot of theoretical knowledge, which is not saying which is important, but not understanding the the pressures and the context of actually working in the in in the field, and and, and understanding the the, the the multifaceted roles that journalists journalists play. You know, it's we're not just watchdogs, uh, like Herman said. We we do, you know, we, we, we do sometimes um, do listening journalism, you know, trying to have solutions journalism, and and just to get exposed to those different kinds and forms of journalism. There's, I mean, I mean there's the whole school of pleasure journalism. It's not just, you know, it's not just um, um, naming and shaming and exposing and then moving on to the next naming and shaming and exposing. There's there's there's, a, there's, there's there are many different roles that we play. And so I, I do think there needs to be uh, – we need to solidify the relationship between the academy and, and working journalists, I think.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, if I can come in, I think it's, it's a longstanding <laughs> debate, of course, between acad- academic uh, journalism or journalism studies and, and practitioners. And, you know, I, I, from from an academic point of view, we often think that, you know, we're asked to, to view the practice as normative. In other words, we have to prepare – People to go into practice, whereas we would also like the reverse to be true in a way, to say that journalists should also, you know, um, pay more attention to what research is being done. And, and, you know, um, that's why it's always great to have journalists like Heather and others coming back and doing their MAs and and, and telling us also what the reality is out there and and, and vice versa. But I think what is is undoubtedly true, and that is that the, the technology has sped up things so much that the pressures are immense. Um, and I think the this is both true of, of what I can see from practice, but also certainly from from the educational point of view, is that there is often the the demand then also to say that get the technology right first. I mean, you have to um, be able to do. Podcasts, video casts, clips, um, do all of that technology stuff. And there's almost that fetishization of, of delivery of beautiful media products, right? We often people also say we're producing content. I mean, they're not even saying being journalism, we're producing content. Whereas um, I think that language betrays something of a sort of mindset of, um, you know, it's the product that is important, not the process. Whereas I think the, the process, uh, we have to claw back a bit and say the process has to be maybe sometimes slowed down a little bit. And, and again, we see this now in this context, where there's so much happening so fast, um, and it's all over social media, it's all over television, it's on our WhatsApps, and, and everything seems to be happening so fast that. Um, and, and journalists have this instinct, and I think it's it's mostly important as well to try and stay on top of what is happening. But I think there is certainly also a parallel demand and that is to say, well, let's just pause a little bit and think about what is happening. And, and as things are unfolding, try and also make sense of them. And, and I think that's where there's, then there's also interestingly a, a, um, a, another movement, you know, we've talked about, talked about solutions journalism and peace journalism. But there's also a movement saying about slow journalism, whereas, which is counterintuitive, right? Because journalism is that, that first draft of history. It's history in a hurry. It's always that, that fast paced. But saying that, you know, the role, and, and this is to come back to, Heather, what you've said right at the beginning about journalists as curators, um, to say that, you know, all of that fast-moving stuff is already out there. You can't really hope to keep up with it. What you can do as a journalist is to try and make sense of it and contextualize it and, and add meaning to it and, and let people, you know, think about it maybe a bit more slowly. So I think there's these, these I, don't, I don't want to say they're competing imperatives. I would rather say they're parallel imperatives of, of reporting, doing it on on technology, doing it fast, bringing the news out there in all these various formats that you require to do, but at the same time, also doing the slow work of meaning making of explaining of contextualization um, and and I think that's where if we come back to education, where certainly in in the department where I am, you know that's the way that we think about what we're doing is not only and maybe not even as much as some other places are doing the technology and the practical stuff saying what we are also wanting journalists or would be journalists to develop is that sense of imagination and also a sense of moral imagination. So, um, and, and Kamaran, you mentioned Martha Nasbaum earlier. Um, she wrote a beautiful little book on the humanities. It's called not for profit. Um, in that book, she talks about the, the importance of humanities because what she says, if you're reading a novel, if you're seeing a play, um, those sort of things at university develops a moral imagination. You try and imagine yourself in the position of somebody else. So if you see somebody looting in a in a mall, right, um, the first instinct maybe is to condemn, but um, you can also try and imagine what that person might be thinking or what that, might, that person's conditions, life conditions might be, and that might lead to a different – I'm not saying that mean, means that you have to justify everything – but it might just lead to a richer understanding of what is going on here. Um, and and so I think the sort of education of journalism for me is that education of a sort of imagination, of a moral imagination, um, and trying to understand things within a broader context. And that's often also a historical context. So um, we, Heather, you mentioned generalization of journalists. Um, how many journalists in newsrooms today... Can recall, you know, those days that Kamaran referred to the, the IFP and the and the, the what's happened in, in during the states of emergency. I mean, do they even know what the states of emergency were? And, and so when you see now people calling for a state of emergency, um do they understand the implications of this? Do they understand the historical ramifications of what it means to send troops into suburbs and townships? So, um, I think that is also important is that, that sense of history and this, that, that long, um, the knowledge of the long context. Um, and all of that, that has to, I think, come into play when you, when you're, a, um, journalism or media educator. But it, I, I would like to see more of that also happening in, in practice, um, where that sort of, um, conversations are happening in terms of how do we understand this current present moment, this hurried history, in, in the context of a much longer, um, social history and political history.
1: So, um, one of my colleagues, Marianne Thum, one of the, one, one of the grey hairs in the over sixties, um, t- two weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, set up what we call a political cafe, politics cafe, um, every Monday at 10 o'clock, um, because she identified that we would, you know, everyone's talking in circles and we, and we're all working, you know, there's no newsroom because we're all working remotely. And so where, where, where younger members of us, of our staff can engage with, with, with all the, and, and talk about what's actually happening in our country. Um, and so everyone can have a view on it. I mean, that's, I mean, it's just an hour. It's an hour from 10 to 11 on a Monday and people, it's, 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 um, on Google Meets. But that is a way of, you know, of, of that, that intergenerational, you know, sharing of history and understanding and questioning, you know, it's like, uh, um, and I, I yeah that for me that, that that's a pretty positive move to actually just just get that that deeper understanding of of what are we doing It's not just getting the story, it's like you know whats the, you know how did we get to where we are now in terms of this context that we're living in.
0: Please join us in part two of this podcast as we continue our discussion with Heather and Herman.